Welcome to Mincast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 415.5, recorded on Sunday, June 25th, 2023. Back from the swamps, I'm Joe. Getting rained on, I'm Moss. Keeping cool, I'm Majid. In our inner section, we get all cloudy. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. Linux in its time. So, Joe, you're going to be telling us a lot about remote access, something which I have yet to conceptually get my head around. Well, um, so help. You, you would be surprised. Um, a lot of the things you do are probably in the server client model in some way, and you just don't think about it. And a lot of mm-hmm. it you just don't have set up yourself yet. So I know that you had talked about like Google Photos and stuff like that. And you could technically set up your own with either Nextcloud mm-hmm. or um, Resilio Sync or something like that. But um, <clears throat> this is kind of covering some of that. This is a lot of this is stuff that I do on a regular basis. So this it's going to be covering a lot of subjects and, and practical applications on my part. Um, I'm hoping that you guys can jump in and talk about how you access things when you're not at home and. Um, there are many solutions and niche cases for things like this. Um, I've gone over a lot of these things before, um, but I've been getting a lot of people asking me questions lately about it. So I figure it's time to do another another walkthrough. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that I would like to actually set up for my my mother. Um, I mean, at the moment, I don't really need to do much tech support for her because my sister, my mom lives with my sister. My sister sorts it all out. Um, and it's never really particularly complicated stuff. But yeah, there have been times um, and I, it would have been so easy if I had remote access to a machine to you know, just, I don't know, print stuff out for her, if nothing else. I can't get yeah. the printer to work. You know, it's like I'm pressing the print button, but it's not working. And it's like, okay, Safi at home. No, oh, she's at work. I need to get this printed. Oh, God, all right. Yeah. You know, anyway. Um, so, yes. So, it's, uh, you know, it's not just an academic thing for me either. So, anyway, over to you. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I will get to, to the remote desktop support, at least to some extent. It's a much smaller section because I don't like doing it. But um, uh, I do have my overall suggestion for that. But we, we will get there. I'm, I'm going to start this one with the basics, and that is SSH. Uh, SSH is one of the the classic uh, remote control methods that have been around for a very long time. Um, We talked about it a little bit earlier in the news. SSH stands for Secure Shell. Um, It is encrypted, so it is safer to use on on unsecured networks. Um, SSH was designed as a replacement for Telnet because Telnet was, you know, laughably secure. 
Uh, to make it more secure, you should set up like port forwarding on a non-standard port, which also we mentioned in the news. Um, and you can do that at the router level instead of trying to do that at the computer level because, you know, most of your routers will let you do that uh, graphically. And it is security through obscurity, but, you know, every little bit helps. Um, what I mean is like pick a port at random on your router and have that point to port 22 on the device that you're trying to access. Um, this can also be used as a way to allow multiple devices to have direct access to SSH if you want, although I suggest using one device as an SSH gateway to all your other devices. This limits the number of ports that you have exposed. So what you would do is um, SSH into the one device and then use that to SSH into other devices on your network. Now, for SSH, there are a couple of ways that this can be set up and used to make one's life easier while on the go. Uh, first is just using the standard user password command line method to view and move files on a remote system or to turn on and off different services and applications. Once you use the user password method, it is just like you are using the command line on the remote system locally. Mostly there are some different things. Now this can be good if you just need to do something or check something quickly on the remote system or if you use some file based automation on your home system. You can also do an update or reboot over SSH, although this has risks such as your computer not coming back online or things not working the way that you want to. Um, installing and testing out a new application from a remote uh, location as well. Uh, and I do do this later on in, in this discussion. Now, if I'm going to be doing a lot of SSH work or using a lot of tools that use SSH, I prefer to use the public private key pairs uh, to take out the need for the password. It's also more secure. Um, this method uh, also allows for automation using things like if up, if down, and cron. If you don't have it set up, then you really cannot do any type of automation using SSH. Uh, you can set this up following the instructions at, uh, and I provide a link. It's uh, linuxize.com post how to set up passwordless SSH login. I considered going through all the commands, but that might be a bit bothersome in this format. Uh, you may want to do this for both machines, so it's both ways. Uh, basically, there are two commands that you do need, um, SSH tech, Keegan tech, RSA TAC B4096, which gives you 4096-bit encryption, um, and then SSH copy ID, and then uh, username at remote IP. There are some other things that might um, need doing, but you can check for that yourself at that link that I provided. Uh, one thing that I sometimes use SSH for that a lot of people don't think about is SSH port forwarding. This is a little bit complicated. Uh, port forwarding allows you to access things on another network without having to go through the process of exposing the remote port. Um, a quick example of this would be remoting into my server to forward my audiobook library so that I can control the remote machine like it was local. Um, for this, the command SSH um, user at remote IP and then TAC P and then the port number that you set up on your router and then TAC capital L and then the port number, localhost port number. Um, then I just go to localhost port number and I have direct access like I was on the, the machine at home. Um, there are some applications that um, have security features that do not allow you to make changes from remotely. This bypasses that. 
I've used this for things that I really don't want to expose the uh, ports for, such as, you know, uh, specific note-taking tools that I wished to also remain secure. This is a clean and fast way to do this style of remote access. There are other ways. Uh, one of those methods that is a little bit slower, but much more robust and useful is X11 forwarding. Now there are issues with X11 forwarding with its slowness. Um, one of the ways you can get around that is by using TAC capital C, which allows for compression. Really, you should be using TAC capital C um, whenever you're doing anything over SSH because it really does uh, optimize that connection. Um, the command for this one for X11 forwarding is actually super easy. It's SSH and then TAC capital X and then um, user at remote IP. TAC capital C, TAC P, and then the port number. Um, <clears throat> this allows you to launch graphical applications. Wow. Okay, it just jumped. I think it's because somebody keeps changing things. I have to find my spot again. I've had it jump a couple times on me too. I don't think I've been doing okay, much. Okay, okay. Um, where was I? Where was I? Okay. Same here. I haven't been either. But This anyway. allows you to launch graphical applications from the remote system locally. Uh, obviously, this is slower than accessing directly. But one thing that I like to do that makes things easier than using a bunch of port forwarding commands is to kick off X11 forwarding and launching Firefox, which then basically is a Firefox from my home system. Uh, this can also be helpful on... Um, secure networks that don't allow certain things to run like VPN protocols or things like that. So if it, if it's restricted, then you, you're doing everything over SSH and you know, it, it looks like it's essentially coming from your home network. Um, <clears throat> there are other things that you can do with this, such as if you have a um, lower end machine, and you can't install a specific application on said machine, then you could have it installed on your server and run it uh, graphically remotely. The, like I was saying, this makes it easy to access everything as if I was local. Now, why would I use this over something like a VPN? Like I was saying, uh, some networks don't allow VPN pro protocols. Sometimes I simply don't have a VPN set up. Um, I will discuss more on VPNs here in a little bit because they are also great for remote access. But that means that all of my servers are just accessible without me having to forward any more ports than the port that I have set up for SSH. Um, also, internet, you know, all the surfing that you do will appear to come from your home network, which, you know, can make for a really good alibi. Hey, look, I was surfing at home. I wasn't at that location. Okay, now... As an extension of SSH, I have put in SSHFS. This is something that I use very often, um, constantly, really. It is a great way to expand the usefulness of lower-end storage devices. Now, SSHFS is a fuse mount for remote drives over SSH. It allows me to access all of the storage on my server as though um, it is a local storage device. There are some limitations, of course, but some of those can be mitigated with automation and others with different styles of access. 
the one major flaw that I've been able to mitigate is that if you are have not been able to mitigate is that if you are connected to the remote server and if you move a file from one location on that server to another location on that server using the GUI as in the drag and drop method is that the data will go from the remote server and will pull through to the local machine and then right out back to the server. This will slow things down considerably, especially with larger files. Um, you can get around this with other style, styles of connections. As I said, the SSH method, if you SSH into the system, that, that will usually um, handle it. Um, um, I've used several different methods to automate SSHFS uh, connections on different systems with different levels of success. RC.local is a good way to connect at boot if you put in a wait for network. The problem gets to be that if you lose your network connection, then um, your fuse mount is kind of left hanging and it will not reconnect. And you, you have to clear everything out. Now, cron can be useful for this as well if you're willing to script out some checks for networking and you can get pretty darn complicated with um, how you're checking. And once you have all of that implemented, it will work really well, but you've really got to get that uh, bash script set up correctly. Now, the best that I have found for easy automation is um, if up, if down. Um, if your system uses it, you can create a script that runs the when the network comes up and another when the network goes down. Uh, that will clear the fuse mount and it'll be ready when the network connects again. I've included the commands here. It's basically the SSHFS um, user at remote IP and then the location that you want on the remote and then the mount point that you have set up and you do have to do some configuration to, to get the mount point permissions correct and then make sure to use your TAC capital C and then your TAC P for the port number. And then for the down, um, you need to do a kill all TAC 9 SSHFS and a U mount on the location. Now, um, I started using um, SSHFS just simply because of how bad network shares were to set up on Linux for the longest time. Um, <sighs> I understand that uh, there are probably much, they are probably much better now, but uh, I like this method and it works from, you know, outside my network. So uh, no Samba for me. Now, uh, another method for remote access that I use quite often and enjoy is um, X2Go. And, and that is essentially desktop sharing over SSH. So with the desktop sharing, um, you can use X11 sharing options, which allow you to view what is currently on the screen on the remote system. You can see where this would be useful. Now, the only issue that I have with this is um, uh, I use some pretty small screens for my thin clients and my home computer uses two monitors. So when you do this type of sharing, it sends you both monitors and everything is like really super small. Um, this is basically a way of using remote desktop protocol and because some of the limitations of Chrome itself, it can be useful. I also found it useful when accessing an already running VM. Now it is a very optimized setup for streaming and controlling your desktop from far away. Um, I had mentioned earlier how, uh, X11 forwarding was extremely slow and you needed to use compression. Uh, the guys that did 
the setup for X2Go did a lot of optimizations to make it work really, really well. And I think that there are some other optimizations that you can add in if it's being slow or anything like that. But I, I really like how this, this works, but um, I've never been able to find a proper Android client to it. I did find a substitute though, and we will get to that. Uh, now, another great thing about X2Go is it can spin off a new desktop. So even if your home computer is running and it's got everything popped up in the foreground, um, you can spin off another desktop in the background and log in a second time and be doing anything that you want or need. Um, there are two uses that I found for this. The first one being when I'm using a smaller screen and want something a little bit more optimized, I can spin off that new desktop session with a single screen and, and, and run everything from there. Also, um, if my computer at home has been restarted, I can create a new desktop and have full control without having, and, and in that case, I can kick off Chrome and I can kick off um, my VM. Um, and it, that came in very handy when like the power went out at my house here and I had to have one of my daughters go in and turn on my computer in the garage uh, while I was still in Florida. So that once again gave me control of all of my servers um, as if I were sitting in front of my computer there. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, like I said, th this gives me full access to adjust a lot of the automation that I have set up and it gives me access to my Resilio Sync instance, which, you know, I, I did use. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, it was... I, I ended up having to log in to X2Go to get my Resilio Sync instance so that I could transfer the um, Spider-Man 2099 from my 1GX to my my phone more easily because it was a, a rather large size file. And, and the syncing allowed that very simply. Um, <clears throat> okay, this is, like I said... Um, this is my own personal thin client setup. As long as my network connection is halfway decent, it doesn't matter what device I'm using. So long as I can run X2Go. Um, <clears throat> both of these methods are a good workaround for the issues that I mentioned earlier with SSHFS. So uh, because it's using SSH as the backend, if I'm logged in, in like that and just remoting into the screen, if I do a copy and paste, it works as a local action and doesn't take anywhere near as long. Now this does require the host machine to be running Linux. Um, so I've not found it to be exceptionally useful in helping family with computer issues. Um, I have used this on computers I've never seen before, including um, my brother's old server and uh, DigitalOcean instances. Although with the low-end DigitalOcean instances, it is extremely slow. You need one that's a little bit faster. I don't like using Cinnamon over X2Go um, because it ends up software rendering, but one of the great things about it is that um, you can install a second desktop like Mate or LXDE and, and just use those when you spin off a new desktop. Oh, moving on from there, uh, VPNs. VPNs are a great tool that I use all the time. Um, it adds a layer of encryption and security and obfuscates your actions on whatever network you are on. If you are on any other, any network other than your own, you should definitely be running a VPN. 
Um, another great thing that it can do is change your location to anywhere in the world that you have access to a VPN server. Uh, this is not as useful as you might think in regards to things like viewing region locked content if you're using a commercial solution because most services will block those IPs. But if you have a friend or something um, in a foreign country that's willing to set up a VPN for you, then that should work. Um, <clears throat> but if you have one set up at home, on your home network, there are some interesting things that you can do and it's a lot easier to set up than a lot of the other solutions that I have discussed. And now you still get the added security for the network that you are attached to, but you are passing the trust off to your local internet provider. Now having it set up on your local network allows you to have an IP address that is local to your home network. This means that you can access everything at home as though you were also at home. You don't need to expose all the ports on your router to be able to access things. Uh, there are many simple ways to set this up. Me personally, I use my router, which has the functionality built in and it also provides me with a static DNS. Um, I just have to turn the functionality on and then get the OVPN file and use that on the devices with which I wish to connect. Uh, you can also do something like a setup with a Raspberry Pi with Pi VPN and you will get the same effect that you will need but you will need to expose the port for that. Uh, once you are on the local network, all your network shares will be available and you can SSH directly to everything on your local network. Now, I have the instructions here on how to set up, Pi v or, uh, set up a VPN with Pi VPN on a Pi with Raspbian installed. Uh, first, you SSH into your Pi and then you run a curl command to bring it in and that will automatically run. It's basically curl tech L and then HTTPS install Pi VPN IO and you pipe that into bash. And then you follow the walkthrough and you set up port forwarding on your router. The standard port is 51820. I always suggest changing that. Um, I use the command, or, well, you have to use the command pyvpn-tac-a to create a new user, and that will create a config file. Um, once again, follow the installer. And then after that, I used sftp to get the file onto my computer and uh, Resilio Sync to get that onto my phone. Um, uh, for this one, I decided to use WireGuard because I never used WireGuard before and have it successfully set up. So I installed WireGuard onto my phone at that point and I pointed it to the file. It just worked. Um, I verified that it was um, off of the local network and then I turned it on and it would give me a local IP address and allow me to access all of my servers as if I was lo local. Now, in the walkthrough, it also pointed out that it would force use the Pi hole as the uh, DNS, which is appreciated as that will block a lot of the ads because, well, yeah, PyHole. Uh, I also set this up on the same Pi Zero that is currently running PyHole, and I have not noticed that it caused any slowdowns or issues so far. I still need to do a full comparison of network speeds between um, using, like, what, um, OpenVPN and uh, um, WireGuard. So we will see how that goes. Now, um, moving on from VPNs, I have uh, several ser servers set up to be able to remotely access information in a much more palatable format, uh, depending on the information, such as uh, Plex, 
This allows me to access my entire library of videos while on the go. So long as I have remote access turned on, I can even use Plex.tv to access it instead of going directly to uh, um, my site. Uh, I use this daily to manage and view my library. Uh, very similarly, beep. Uh, very similarly, audiobook library. I have a huge library of audiobooks and ebooks, and I use this all day, every day to go through it. It does require a bit of management, but I love this application. It has also replaced my phone's podcatcher. Uh, basically, I don't download anything directly to my phone anymore. It all goes to my server, and I access it from there. My phone is just my doorway to my home system. Now, another one, um, Octopi. Uh, I, I use this to access my 3D printer from anywhere. If I'm at work and I decide I want to print something, then I will need to access a couple of different things on my home system to get the print set up, and then you use Octopi to start and monitor print. It's a great thing to do while I'm on my lunch break. Um, I can also verify that a print is starting correctly and not experiencing any errors, and if it does start making spaghetti or come loose from the bed, I can stop the print. Um, I am thinking about getting a CR Touch uh, auto bed leveler to help with some of the print starting issues that sometimes come up when you're, you're far away from home and can't level the bed, but uh, that's something for the future. Now, um, the next parts should go through pretty quickly. Uh, remote desktop sharing for helping family. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is VNC. It's the old school, it's classic method. It's a very common program that is used to remotely access a desktop. Um, it's been around for a long time. It does require a bit of setup to get working properly. Um, I have used it to monitor my children's activity online. Um, when my easily distracted child was supposed to be doing homework on her Windows machine, uh, I also did that in conjunction with like um, you know, blocking specific websites that she was accessing to read fan fiction. Uh, it's a good tool with a few free clients and servers, easily accessible. Um, now I have Windows RDP listed on here, but there isn't a whole lot I, I, I want to say about Windows RDP. It's a back end for a lot of the stuff that we're discussing. That's Windows Remote Desktop Protocol. But moving on from there, my my recent new again favorite is Chrome Remote Desktop. And um, Majid, you might think about getting this set up on, on your mom's computer because I was really surprised with mm -hmm. the functionality here. Uh, and I, I do need to do more testing because I tested this as a part of the show, so very little has been tested so far. Um, this mm -hmm. is a Chrome and um, Chrome extension and Google application. I tested it out and I'm actually very surprised at the functionality and I, more testing will be required. I did need to install a dev package and the Android application to get it working and the, the text was very small at, at first in the setup when I was looking at it on my Android phone, but um, it, it did work out. Uh, once I could tell what was happening and I found out that it'll work with a lot like X2Go, um, it, does in that it will allow me to spin off another desktop. It actually checks to see, or, well, it, it lets you pick amongst the commands, at least on a Linux system. And, and I was able to spin off my, my Mate desktop, um, except this time from my Android phone. Uh, the keyboard usage was horrible on screen, as was the mouse, which was which used the, the screen of your phone as a touchpad, which takes some getting used to. So I... I 
but I can see where this would be epic with some display tweaking and a Bluetooth mouse and keyboard. Uh, this will be a much easier way of using Linux on an Android device for me. I am actually really excited to test this out. Uh, maybe even using it with um, an external monitor. Now, I'm, I'm not a fan of using um, Google service when I don't have to. But this is just way too easy to set up. Um, I did not see an option to access the currently running desktop. Uh, but the text was pretty small, like really tiny. And I don't know if it would act, it would obviously have to act differently on, on a Windows system. So my assumption is, is that you could just view the desktop. And I know I used it a long, long time ago uh, to do just that. And it does require a long pin. So there is some security with that. Um, if I like it well enough and end up using it more on my phone, maybe I will do an entire innards on it and get back to y'all. Now, moving on from there, we have uh, TeamViewer. Um, TeamViewer is an easy to use tool that is designed for you to be able to help people with their desktops from remote. It's actually really easy to set up with some simple instructions and is robust and secure. Uh, lots of options and it does require a, a rather secure pin to access. Um, now, uh, it is secure, uh, but the problem gets to be that it is really super easy to set up with simple instructions. So it gets used to scam people that are vulnerable. Now my brother swears by this application and he does a lot of re remote desktop support, but because of the propensity for abuse, I, I just can't get behind using it regularly. Um, now any desk very similarly, but this one was suggested by Bill who could not be here today. Uh, I have not used any desks, so I can't say how really well it works. But looking at the wiki, uh, I can see that it's also used in a lot of remote support uh, scams. So, uh, it's, and, and technical scams. It's really not something that I can get behind. But looking at the, the rest of the write-up, one interesting thing that I did see and I would like more information on is it seems to have... Um, a VPN that is built into it. So does that mean that if you set it up, you can just start VPNing from a remote location to your AnyDesk instance? I'm not sure. Oh, and that's really all I have. Uh, do you guys have anything that, that, that you want to add? Joe, um, as you know, I have been using your Plex server for some mm -hmm. things. And at first I was going through Plex and I was getting really low volume levels. And so you gave me a direct login to your mm -hmm. server, which, which is in the uh, general. And I should probably take it out uh, for security reasons. Um, but now we've started having the volume problems logging directly to your server. Really? Because we, we gave up trying to listen to Strange New Worlds episode two. Oof last night because we just couldn't hear it i'm sorry to hear that i, we, I don't know what the we issue had is everything there. turned up that we could turn up literally everything we have boosters on on the system and everything and for most of our watching on other systems we have to turn it down i, I will go through my settings again but i don't know what would be causing that because I, I i have never had that issue i mean and my family uses my plex daily 
Londoner responded that he watched season two, episode one and episode two earlier this afternoon, and that he uses TeamViewer regularly to help his former neighbor when he messes up his Windows machine. Two different oh, points. Um, Majid, the answer to your question is yes. Okay, then I'm going to have to try this out. Because I'm just wondering whether there would be... Uh, I'm always surprised that uh, companies and governments and whatever can limit internet traffic. Because for me, it seems like you should be able to access anything from anywhere on the, inter uh, on the internet. But it is true that sometimes it's difficult to access stuff that's from other countries. So that's why that was my reason for asking about the Uplex server. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna try until, it out now. until Joe actually deletes the line I put in, uh, it's it's in the general right now. What I use to access Joe's Plex server is it? Yes, yeah, in the Discord. Well, that's the link to it. But uh, yeah, um, unless you have the user set up, which you don't. But yeah. Well, you said as if I was logged in to Plex, that that would uh, get me in there with better volume, and it did for a while, but it's not now. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll you should check the stream settings and see what the audio stream settings are for that. But that's something for another time. That. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So well, you wanted something to talk I did, about. But <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really interesting, and it's some. I'm going to start playing around with a couple of these things now. Um, yeah, it will be. Uh, yeah, it does. It it does look pretty cool. All right, let's move on then to uh, vibrations from the ether. Brad Alexander sent me um, another email. This is actually a couple of weeks old at this point, a continuation of a conversation that we were having about um, headsets and superglue. Uh, hey man, I saw this on YouTube and wanted to share it with you. You were mentioning that superglue on the plastic parts of these headphones can get brittle and doesn't last. A buddy of mine uh, online sent me this and he has uh, two links to um, YouTube uh, with videos on um, baking soda and super glue uh, if true it's pretty amazing and by the way i managed to find a reasonably priced set of hbs 820s on ebay and so far i've been pretty happy with them if you try the baking soda thing let me know how it works and, and yes those videos were actually really interesting and and kind of cool and um i have tried the the baking soda thing but um my ratios were a lot different because uh and I just tried to use the baking soda to make the superglue dry more quickly. And I was also using the wrong type of superglue specifically for that. I was using the Gorilla Glue instead of standard superglue. So um, I, I will have to try that out on something and see how it works out. Okay, so Hank also got in touch with us uh, and said, uh, thanks for continually interesting podcast. Uh, the subject of Git and Git servers is, has interested me. Uh, so this was uh, our innards about 
all things Git. So Hank says that he uses Git a lot. I have 88 repositories on GitHub and somewhat less on my private Gitea server. Also have a handful of projects on GitLab and Bitbucket. Most of these are code repositories. But a few years ago, I started keeping notes in Markdown and converting to HTML using MKDocs. I've just checked, he says, and then he actually has 355 Markdown files in his notes repo on his server. You can get a feel for what that looks like by checking a public blog on GitHub and there's uh, links in the show notes. He continues, as mentioned, I use Gitea running in a Docker container. I tried GitLab on my first file server, but the ARM processor just didn't have enough oomph and pages would time out, never loading. I switched to Gitea and it ran fine on the Atom 10 or 15 years ago, if I remember correctly. My server is now a Xeon with 16 gig of RAM and I still use Docker Gitea in a Docker container. Yeah, only slightly different, I suppose. Uh, but you asked about Gitea on a Raspberry Pi. I have a test server running on a Pi 4 b for uh for gig ram with two six terabyte eight hard drives in a zfs mirror and i also have guitar running on that again in a docker container it holds the same repo as the main guitar server and i simply configure my projects to pull push to both remotes can i just make the point that a pi 4b with two six terabyte hey um hard disks sounds epic but anyway um uh, you also put, incidentally, I think MKDocs and a Git server would solve the, the page just jumped while I was reading issue. Yeah, we had that, didn't we? Um, I guess you're collaborating on something like Google Docs and sharing the same page as, so that any interaction on the page is reflected to all other viewers. Well, we're using the... Uh, and the answer is, yeah, we were using Google Docs. Yeah, now we're using... We didn't have the problem with Google Docs, but we didn't want to be on Google. So we are now using Collabora on Nextcloud. Yeah, which I actually works really well, I think, actually. So he suggests... Mm, I think it messes up a lot. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, well... <laughs> He suggests put your notes in Markdown and push to a server to share. Then use mkdocs to render and python-mhttp, if I recall correctly, to serve and to serve and each uh, participant has their private view of the page and no interactions between users. But you do give up the real-time update, so it might not suit your workflow. Yeah, we do that. Yeah, that's one of the big advantages, isn't it? Having real-time updates. If, yeah, except when it updates and the page shifts all over the place. <laughs> if you have any questions to ask, feel free to ask away and direct me to a platform more conducive to discussions. Well, um, we have our Discord server um, with links in the show notes. Um, and so um, that's probably the best place to, if you want to uh, chat to us. Um, the Telegram group's there as well, but it's not as active. I think that's fair to say. Well, I find it active enough, but the difference is on the Discord server, you can separate it out into topics. Mm. Cool. So, moving on to check this out. So, in what must be a first, we actually have two episodes in which we actually have something to check out. Last time it was Ferran OS. And this time it's a, a new app to trim, crop, mirror and flip videos on Linux. So this is from OMG Linux via our good friend Londoner. A new app available from Flathub makes it easy to edit short videos on Linux. The GTK4 Libertwaiter app footage is not a fully fledged video editor, but it's a utility edit video editors will want to have in their toolbox. 
Using this app, you can trim video clips, rotate videos, flip videos horizontally, that is mirroring them, and vertically, i.e. flipping them, and crop videos, all without needing to set up a complicated video project or deal with project settings, as you would in a proper video editor. So, um, other, thing, other things you can do with footage, you can rotate left and right, you, as I said, flip, uh, you can crop videos, you can trim videos, using jaggable in and out points, you can change the frame rate, resize the video, uh, convert it to MKV, MP4, WebM, GIFs, as well as making it simple to perform common edits. Footage also lets, ex lets you export video in a number of formats. Um, so uh, Moss could then take a five second video of his cat and turn it into a GIF if he wanted to, or I could once we get these cats turn up. Well, I might turn it into a GIF, but I'm not sure I could do any of this. <laughs> well, in all of this, it's a well-made, well-designed utility that caters to all sorts of use cases, from casual clip sharing between friends through to professional contact to share with clients. It's highly recommended. So this seems like these... So, you know, people who use things like Instagram or uh, Snapchat, um, the other kind of video, uh, TikTok, you know, you could... Um, you you know, they have some basic uh, video editing f functionality in the uh, in the app. And so this is kind of like um, a Linux and open source version of that, really, um, which I think would be very good for simple people like me. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to trying it myself. It looks really simple. Okay. And it's on Flathub. Yeah, so uh, Flatpak City. Um they, we've also got a link here for a Diablo build for modern modern operating systems. So, uh, is this a theme? No, it's actually um, Diablo One and Hellfire just recently came out with a, a, another uh, new release. So, and it does play on Linux, and you can get the game from um, GOG. But uh, I included the link to um, what was it? Uh, Darn it! I lost it. The the devolution devolution X, yeah, which is the uh, yeah. setup and the launcher for this, and it tells you how to install and, and use it on Linux. So it, it's something to check out. I mean, I I really enjoyed playing Diablo and Diablo two back in the day, so I might mm -hmm. give it a try. Okay. Cool. Well, now that there is a PlayStation 5 in the house, I wonder if I can convince my son. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, housekeeping and announcements. Thank you, fine folks, for listening to this episode of Minkcast. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us an email at minkcast at minkcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Minkcast subreddit. Chat with us directly on Telegram and Discord. Or post directly to uh, HTTPS, minkcast.org. Our next episode will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, July 9th, 2023. And there's a link to get that converted to your time zone in the show notes. The next roundtable live stream, 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, July the 15th, 2023. And there's a link to get that converted to your time zone in the show notes. The live stream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. So, wrapping up, Joe. Well, um, if you like the sound of my voice, I'm on a couple other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show. That's TLLTS.org. Um, they could use some more hosts if you guys want to join there. Um, I'm also on Linux Lugcast, which is linuxlugcast.com. 
You can send me an email directly, jb at mincast.org, or buy me a coffee on Kofi. Boss. Well, you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News, uh, every four to five weeks on Distro Hopper's Digest. I, my email is bardmoss at pm.me. I'm on Mastodon as at zyvola at hosttux.social, and my other contact information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill, if he was here, would tell us that he's available at bill at mincast.org, that he's bill underscore h on Discord, that he's at wchauser3 at fosterdon.org on Mastodon, at wchauser3 on Twitter, and wchauser3 on Facebook also, and he's also on Linux OTC and the 3 Fat Tuckers podcasts. He is doing some important stuff this weekend that is celebrating his anniversary. Myself? His 25th anniversary. That's a big one. Was it 25? All right. That's what I remember him saying. Uh Yeah. Congratulations, Bill. You'd probably get less for a murder charge. But anyway, um, (laughs) so if you really want to uh, listen to my voice or get in contact with me, I'm Dr. Majid at Minkast.org. I'm at Atypical Doctor on Twitter. Atypical Anesthetist on Instagram and the Atypical Anesthetist podcast on Spotify, which um, has been a little bit of a hiatus, but I am hoping to get back into it. Links for all of those are in the show notes. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mincast possible. It's probably going to be Joe doing our audio editing this time, isn't it? All right. It'll okay. be Bill. Well, somebody will be doing the audio, uh, audio editing. Uh, we thank archive.org for hosting our audio files, Hobstar for our logo, Initadi for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time syncs and finding some very interesting articles, Bill for hosting the server which runs our website, website maintenance, and the next cloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. And finally, and most importantly, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks, Clem. Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast.